was pitching modern fertility to investors, there was just kind of, you know, confusion and disbelief. You're you're creating a fertility company for people that don't want to get pregnant? What is that? And I think that there was a lot of education that we had to do to show that the world was changing and, and women were demanding this. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Afton Vetri, to our show today. Afton is the co-founder and CEO of Modern Fertility, a women's health company focused on making fertility information more accessible for women everywhere. In 2016, Afton was trying to get a better understanding of her fertility, even though she wasn't trying to have kids yet. As she began learning more, she realized a few things. Number one, everyone's fertility changes at different rates. And number two, there are simple blood tests that check in on your fertility, but they're incredibly expensive and not easy to get if you're not trying to get pregnant. It was at this point she realized something has to change. She teamed up with her co-founder and after talking to hundreds of women, she heard one thing loud and clear. People with ovaries don't have the information they need to plan ahead. Modern Fertility was created to change that. The company has raised 22 million from top tier investors like first round ventures and forerunner ventures and most recently sold to Roe for over 200 million dollars. We'll talk to Afton about the importance of women being educated about their bodies and fertility, lessons she learned on her entrepreneurial journey and building a VC backed business and myths we have around fertility. Welcome to the show Afton. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. And big congrats on the recent acquisition. I'm sure things are hectic and busy. So I'm honored that you're spending the time with us today. I can't wait to jump into it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. It has been a whirlwind. I'm not going to lie, but it's so fun sometimes to just get to pull up and talk about it. So I'm really excited to dive in. Yes. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. And it seemed like at a very young age, you were always entrepreneurial. I know you grew up in rural Maryland, and you actually got exposed to business with one specific science project in high school that I think really took you to the next level in terms of business and your involvement in science. So I'd love to hear more about your experience then. Yeah. So I think I was really fortunate to get exposure to entrepreneurship before I even knew what entrepreneurship was. And I think that actually that really helped with imposter syndrome because Mm -hmm. I just, I had a, a thing that I wanted to go do. I did it. And then looking back, it was like, oh, wow, I started a company. I did that. And I think that that early exposure without a ton of pressure around it just really helped kick things off. So yeah, in high school, I did a science fair project. I went to public high school and everybody had to do a science fair project. And I noticed that we all of a sudden had to start drinking out of bottled water. And I asked my science fair teacher, hey, like, why did we have to start drinking out of bottled water? And they said, oh, well, our uh, school failed our routine water test. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so, oh gosh, I think I was 12 years old at the time. Um, Gosh, what are you in like? I know. I was like, how old are you in high school? Like, let's do some math. (laughs) But I went home to my parents and I said, 
hey, like when was the last time that we got our water tested? And growing up in rural Maryland, everybody's on their own well water. There's no city mm. water. The houses are too far apart. So you, you know, drill a hole into the ground, you get to the aquifer underneath and you pump that into your house. And some houses have filters and some don't. And so they said, oh, well, you know, when we moved in, you know, however many years ago. And so just as my science fair project, I realized that the school had to have their water tested since a certain number of kids were drinking out of it. There were kind of more standards in place, but those just didn't exist for private water supplies. And so for that first project, I just ended up testing a handful of wells in the community and found a significant percentage of them were fully contaminated. Wow. I believe it. Yeah. And so I ended up scaling that project and started talking to just local city officials about my findings. And one of them at the Department of Health actually threatened the lawsuit against my family because of those findings, which was crazy as a 13-year-old to do this. And so what I, I think I realized at an early age is that science is incredible, but unless you are really willing to take that next step and do something about it, the world doesn't always solve the things that deserve to be solved. And so I took matters into my own hands and set up a water quality testing company, uh, got a local research and development lab to sponsor our testing equipment. And then we had water testing Wednesdays. And so I convinced the school to let it be used for community service hours. So if you have detention, you could come test water with us on Wednesdays. And we we scaled it up. I worked with the computer science teacher wow. to make a little website. She was very helpful because that is, is not my forte in life. Um, but it was really this early exposure to just put one foot in front of the other. Like what are things like I have a goal. I want to create, you know, more accessibility to this type of information. I need money, equipment, people, infrastructure to do it and just figured it out. And I think that doing that and realizing, you know, even at 13, I was missing my lunches and coming to school early and staying late. And like, this was a lot, but I loved it and I was hooked. And so from there, I really tried to, I guess, honestly, to this day, kind of spend my life and my time at this intersection of science and business and public good in some capacity. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, we'll go into this in a little bit, even your early career was all based around that. So it's amazing to find your interests and passions at such a young age. So, you know, you have this amazing experience in high school. You actually mentioned something really interesting in an interview. Your parents actually were not a fan of you going to college. I know your uncle kind of helped you navigate that world and take you to amazing schools. And I know you eventually went to Wake Forest and got a scholarship, but I'm curious, you know, did your parents have a certain expectation for you in terms of what you were going to do after high school? Yeah. So my parents were focused on me going to college, but I think for them, it was actually, and I, I credit them a lot. My dad started a, a prepaid fund for University of Maryland when I was born, and which is a fantastic school. And it was really important to him that he be able to provide for his kids to go to school. And so the way the agreement works, and I knew this mm. you know, from an early age, and the way that that worked in Maryland was pretty cool. You could basically lock in the tuition rate like 18 years prior to when your kid would go to school. But then if you took those funds and transferred them to another school, they would transfer without interest. And so it turns out in 1989, the cost of a state education was uh, quite a bit lower than it is today. And so I knew that, hey, I, I had this great ability to attend University of Maryland, which was a fantastic school. But if I wanted to go anywhere else, that was my responsibility to mm. figure out the gap. And, you know, I think my parents were incredibly supportive, but I think just in, 
you know, the school that I went to, I didn't really know what Ivy Leagues were or that, you know, there were college reputations of other schools. I also took the ACT and did well on that, but my SAT scores and prep were not top of the notch. The standardized tests were just not my game or, or focus. And so I think that I had this very kind of atypical way that I spent my time. And yeah, I think it, it was my uncle who went to a small liberal arts school, Gettysburg College, that really exposed me to this world that there are other schools that could be really fun. And I think for them, it was really fun to kind of take me around to all these other schools. And when I saw Wake Forest specifically, they had this focus and entrepreneurship. They had just gotten Kauffman Foundation funding. And I looked at it and saw like, wow, here's this school that wants to do more in entrepreneurship. They just got this massive grant that they need to deploy in some way. I am really interested in entrepreneurship and would love to spend my college years kind of experimenting around. I wonder if I can make this work and was super excited. I think with that grant, they had started a, a presidential scholarship for entrepreneurship, which basically meant you, I later learned, had to start companies and, and do entrepreneurial things to stay in school. So I think, you know, looking back, all of this comes together. And I really had a lot of focus in entrepreneurship throughout my life. But at the time, it was really just, you know, one foot in front of the other. You, you do what you have to do and really following my passion and curiosity. Yes. And when I was doing research about you, I didn't even know Wake Forest had this program. And the fact that you had to create companies to maintain your scholarship, I think that is an incredible experience. I wish I went there, but that seems great because I think that muscle to always consistently question things and be creative and think about business ideas is wonderful to develop at such a young age if you're interested in entrepreneurship. So seems like an amazing environment for you, especially. And I know after college, you really dived into the different aspects of healthcare in your career. You know, you worked in private equity, you worked in a few startup positions. And I want to fast forward a little bit because I know it was really at your time, I believe at 23andMe when you were working there, that you really started thinking about your own fertility. And that was really the early days of your idea for modern fertility. So I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah. You know, when I was at 23andMe, I realized that I was waiting until later in life to start my family. And I remembered these baseline tests that I had learned about back in the private equity days. And I tried to get them done and kind of rewinding a bit, actually my first job out of school. And again, it all makes sense when you look backwards, but at the time it's just, you know, one foot in front of the other. But, you know, in that first job out of school, I realized I wanted to learn more about how to scale businesses in truly the healthcare field and ecosystem. And so I joined a healthcare private equity fund where my job was to find sectors of healthcare that were interesting, growing, had some consolidation potential. And I ended up spending time in women's health and fertility because of my personal interest in the space broadly. And truly though, kind of stumbled on the fertility space. I guess at that time, gosh, we're doing so much math. I was, what are you in your first job out of school? Like 20, 21, 22. Yeah. So my girlfriends in New York city were definitely not talking about fertility and having kids and our timelines. But when I kind of Dove had first into this world of fertility. It was like I had a, a secret window into the world that my girlfriends definitely would not be talking about for quite some time. And so I learned the business of infertility. I learned the science of infertility, but it was really the emotional aspect and talking to women that were in infertility clinics and hearing from them, you know, no one ever told me that fertility declined with age or no one ever told me that IDF wouldn't work for every single person. And I think that that experience really left an impression on me, but I didn't know 
know what to do with it at the time. And so it was really this personal quest at 23andMe of realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm waiting until later in life to start my own family, yet I know nothing about my reproductive health. Let me go try to figure that out. So at my next OB appointment, I asked my OBGYN, hey, I would like this panel of tests run. Can you please you know, run it for me? And they said, no, you're not actively trying and failing to have a kid. We're not going to run them for you. And in California, you need a, a doctor's requisition to go do that. And so I was like, oh, wow, well, that's not fun. Like, I know the value of this information. I, now I need to figure out how to get it done. And so I scheduled an appointment at an infertility clinic in San Francisco. And in San Francisco at that time, my consult was $700. And I went and got a piece of paper so I could go to a lab core request and get a blood draw. But I had an irregular cycle. And so even working at 23andMe, which is quite a flexible employer, but, you know, pretty intense job. I couldn't pinpoint day three of my cycle to get enough time to go get that done. And oh my gosh, that was for me working in one of the most flexible environments in the country, in the world. What about healthcare deserts and places across the country where, you know, accessibility is much more of a, a concern, but, you know, fast forward, I finally got that testing done. And the conversation I had with myself, my partner, my healthcare provider, just about my timeline, my reproductive health was so empowering, but then I got a bill in the mail a few weeks later for $1,500 for that panel of tests. And wow. for me though, the aha moment was really sharing this experience with my friends that then turned into friends of friends and, and truly hundreds of women that were reaching out and asking me <laughs> and having conversations about reproductive health and fertility. And that aha moment of realizing that women are finally demanding more information about their bodies, that was the aha moment for modern fertility and that there was truly a fertility information gap that the existing healthcare system and the existing education system was just not well positioned to fix in the near term. And that there was a massive opportunity to enable women to own the decisions impacting their bodies and futures, whatever those might be, starting with our kind of flagship product, the modern fertility hormone test, where we took those exact same tests that I had done and made them accessible at a fraction of the price in a really easy to access format a finger stick that you could take from home. That's incredible. And it's interesting to just kind of see your journey. You know, your interest in fertility started years before you even started at the company. And then you were really going into it on your own personal journey and you became the subject matter expert amongst your friends, right? Everybody was reaching out to you for that. And that was really the timing of you starting the business. So I just love to kind of hear the timelines of when people actually go forward, because sometimes I think it takes some time to just digest in terms of jumping into a business. And it seems like timing and the right opportunity was right there in front of you. And, you know, when you saw that there was a massive information gap in women's health, especially when it comes around fertility, you met your co-founder Carly and you applied for a Y Combinator, which is a well-known accelerator. So I speak to a lot of women entrepreneurs who are early in their business and they're always evaluating whether it's worth going and working in an accelerator versus not. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that and how you think it really influenced modern fertility in those early stages. Yeah. It's really hard to look back in any company and think through what are the things that made us what we are today versus what things could we have skipped. And so it's really hard to understand you know, the impact that Y Combinator specifically had on us, but I am so grateful in terms of where we had today. So I guess what I could do is talk a little bit about, you know, I think the 
benefit of any type of accelerator early on. And I think that benefit is really momentum in the early phases. And I think one of the things that a lot of accelerators do well is that they give you a finite period of time. And then at the end of that, there is a deadline where there are are deliverables. I think it's really, there's so much to do when you're going from zero to one within a company. And I think it's easy to stretch that out in certain ways. And if you need money to continue on that trajectory, that can burn up. And so I think that what accelerators do is they really have the ability to create boundaries around momentum and basically give you a a deadline to work towards. And so in the case of Y Combinator, we ended up raising our first million and doing Y Combinator around the same time. But what we did for the end of that period is we basically set up uh, goals, like very specific goals of exactly where the business needed to be at the end of that period. And then we worked back from those goals and created, Mm -hmm. we had a Gantt chart and uh, a document that we called AC. And in that document, my co-founder Carly and I, every single day, would look at our Gantt chart, where we needed to be in terms of those broader deliverables. And we would transfer that back to our AC to-do list. And we would both have the list of things that we had to do for that given day. And then we just, I mean, for better or worse, wouldn't stop until that list was done. And I think that that type of intensity and momentum and realizing that if you get a day behind, and and we were pretty around the clock at that point, we took off a, a portion of the day on Saturday and Sunday morning, but it was really just this, you know, at all costs us, like this was our sprint to go from zero to one. And I think in the case of modern fertility, it was, you know, building our infrastructure. It was doing a whole validation from scratch. It was, you know, building the brand recruitment. I mean, there were so many different things. And I I think that that momentum just gave us the reason that they had to occur at that pace every single day. Yes. And I think the discipline of it, you know, a couple of things, if you're not an accelerator, it's just like thinking through those goals, right? Like what are three, four things in your business to get it off the ground? And like you said, work backwards from that. And even if you're not in an accelerator, creating those timelines for yourself, because like you said, you know, I'm pre-launch in a business, it's taking a year, but you can easily extend that timeline. There will always be to-do lists, right? It's nonstop to-do lists every day. So I think the structure, if you can create that in your own environment somehow is huge and building on that momentum, right? Everything is momentum. So it's great to see the impact you know, why Combinator had for you guys. And one thing that you mentioned, which I think is amazing is that, you know, you really spent a lot of time validating the idea, right? I believe you dive deep into research. You sent out a ton of surveys amongst women. I'm curious, were there any interesting findings that you had early in the business when you're talking to potential customers that really shaped the product and what modern fertility was going to be? Yeah. So I think, you know, the reason that we ended up doing so many surveys early on was really to validate the things that we were seeing in the market. And I think that, you know, what we were seeing was my personal experience, Carly's personal experience, the conversations that we were having with our girlfriends, but not just in, you know, San Francisco with my friends back in Maryland, just across the country and realizing that fertility and infertility and the stigma in these conversations were not something that discriminated based on where you lived or or socioeconomic impact. And so what was really interesting is that when we first went in and started to, I was pitching modern fertility to investors, there was just kind of confusion and disbelief. You're creating a fertility company for people that don't want to get pregnant. 
what is that? And I think that there was a lot of education that we had to do to show that the customer sentiment that the world was changing and and women were demanding this. And so I think to really speak the language of VCs, it was really quantifying that. And by doing Mm -hmm. surveys and for me being in the position where we could pay out of pocket to show that validated demand was really important in the early days. And we had help, you know, we were calling in every favor in the book. So I would reach out to, you know, former colleagues that knew how to do (laughs) clinically sound user research and then pay them hourly to help us just make sure it was, you know, to the level that it needed to be. But I think, you know, in, in starting Modern Fertility, I knew that we wanted to create a company, a brand and a, a movement that was something that women wanted to engage with. And I think meeting Carly and understanding her past experience and just seeing what a superpower she had in terms of being the voice of that brand, it was really important to us that we were taking all of that into account to create modern fertility in every essence of the brand, but also keep those lines of customer communication open. And so for us, kind of being in this physician-mediated direct-to-consumer environment enabled us to do that by having an Instagram account and DMing with folks, by having a customer experience organization, by building a community. We started to you know, host events in our office by request. And then we realized that the people that were coming in to have this kind of reintroduction to your reproductive health wanted to keep the conversation going. And that mm. you know, community ended up turning from people coming into our office to tens of thousands of women engaging in our Slack community today. And so I think really listening to our customers and creating the space and conversations that they want to engage with and perpetuate has really been core to you know our mission and why we get up every morning and want to keep it going. Absolutely. And a question that comes to mind, and you talked about a little bit, you know, in those early days, you were mentioning some of the hardships you guys were facing, talking to the investors and how you really had to quantify it and explain it in more details. When it came to the consumers in the early stages, was it tough to kind of communicate the messaging of the mission of the brand, or did it really resonate with women? I know you talked about how you were doing a lot of outreach to physicians and, you know, DMs, but how were you building the community and the awareness very early on? Was it natural and organic? Yeah. So I think to start and for a lot of the kind of early product development, we were just obsessed with talking to potential customers and users every single day. And so really to go from zero to one, we had a private beta and we were just obsessed with having, whether it was a customer, whether it was a physician, poking holes in every part of what we were doing. And we viewed that as just a a gift to be able to build a better solution and address all of those things up front. But by the time we got ready to do our our public launch for a pre-order, our strategy was pretty simple. We uh, pitched three different reporters. Oh my gosh, I remember being so nervous. This was you? <laughs> the first time you were pitching, you know, someone at this you know, top tier publication, and I was terrified. For oh my gosh, are we going to say something that's wrong? But also you know, when you pitch reporters, you don't know if they're going to write about the story. You know, it was a embargo. So it was just, you know, up to them if they decided to do it or not. And we ended up launching and all three reporters wrote. Uh, really? getting over $70,000 in pre-orders in just the first few days, which was amazing. And just the way that it kind of exploded on social media platforms in those early days, it was women raising 
their hands and demanding more access to information, but also saying like, oh my gosh, why hasn't this existed before in this format? And so I think that we were really fortunate in the early days to have that momentum that enabled us to continue, you know, investing in development in the science and our broader vision. But I think that getting to that point and being able to launch with the authenticity and the business model that was truly aligned with the best interests of women took an incredible amount of work and something that we are still, you know, spending every day refining to be a part of that. And then, you know, really as your business evolves, I think in the early stages of fundraising, it's a lot of, it can be, you know, data, vision, team, how you're continuing to construct things. But then as the business grows and you try to, if you do go the the venture route and you raise more money, it's really the business metrics themselves that continue to make those decisions. And so I think that slow shift as you get to later stages of the company just has to happen. Absolutely. And I'm curious, you know, a lot of people, we talk a lot about different ways of fundraising for your business. And clearly you guys went down the VC route. I'd love to hear, how did you think about going down the route? Why was it right fit for what you and Carly were wanting to build? And are there any things you wish you knew before going down and raising money from venture capitalists that you can share with our audience? Yeah. Well, you know, I think for making any type of decision, I think it's really thinking about the fundamentals, like what type of decision are you really making? Like when you look at an accelerator, I think you're making a decision around momentum and you're making a decision around maybe access and introductions to more VCs, but there are ways to set that up and network and have your friends be accountability around that process. And I think when making the decision to raise um, venture capital, there's kind of a similar, or for us at least, decision-making structure. And, you know, from the our, our goal was to truly scale modern fertility into a world-changing company quickly. Um, we wanted to create a multi-billion dollar enterprise that had the ability to change women's health and reproductive health as it exists today by addressing all of these gaps that we believe existed. And so in order to continue to hire and build beyond the profitability that we would have as a company, Carly and I made the decision that that VC route is how we wanted to go. And then, you know, quite frankly, I, I put all of my life savings into the company, but that didn't really get us far when we were doing clinical research, when we were doing fully validated concordance studies and labs. So it was truly the need to raise large, you know, millions of dollars to meet our business objectives and fuel them forward. But I actually think that there are a lot of ways to build a company. And if entrepreneurs have the ability to self finance, look to grants, um, look mm-hmm. to other you know, ways to start a company. There's no right way to do it. And each one comes with trade-offs down the line. And I know you briefly talked about this earlier, but you know, you did get a lot of rejection early on when you were seeing various venture capitalists. Did you ever feel like, you know, not necessarily you wanting to quit, but how did you deal with that rejection? Was it tough for you? Or did you always know in your gut that you would find the right person and you're destined to create this company? Yeah. I think that for any business that you are in, for any job that you are in, if you are not getting rejected the majority of the time, then, oh my gosh, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Or at least that's been the mentality that I have lived life by. And I think, you know, truly trying to understand 
the reason for every one of those rejections and get better because of it makes them fun. And of course, you know, going through and pitching and getting no's multiple times a day, like that is definitely going to have an impact and not be the most fun. It'd be great to just wake up in the morning and you know, raise several million dollars and, and continue the rest of your day. But then, you know, we would be living in a very different world. And I think the process, there's a lot that can be improved in terms of the types of companies and entrepreneurs that get financed. But I think it's always can and, and should be hard. But for me, it was always really trying to understand the nature of the rejection and then try to think about everything in my power to fix it. And I think the conviction mm-hmm. of you know combining that with the just full belief that unequivocally this had to exist in the world and I would be able to find a way to make it exist. The combination of that enabled you know me to continue to push. But I mean, it's intense. It was, oh gosh, in our early fundraising processes, it was you know five pitches a day. And then every single one of them have follow-up questions and you're trying to maintain and keep a schedule. Like it is the most intensive periods I've ever been through in my life. And I loved every, <laughs> I wouldn't say I loved every second of it, but I mean, it, it's such a, unique experience to go through. But I think just the mindset around all of it and realizing that it's quite normal and that just taking all of the negative and and really trying to be a truth seeker and understand why that line of questioning is within your control. Yes. And I love your perspective around it, not taking those notes personally, but really learning from it and trying to pivot and understand how you can make your business better. I think that's a great way to think about it. You know, switching gears a little bit over the years, I'm curious, are there one or two moments in your business where you maybe learn the hard way, something about entrepreneurship or some challenging time in your business that you could share with us? Oh, gosh so many things. You know, I think when we were starting Modern Fertility, we were starting around the era of Theranos. And for those of you who don't know, there was a lot of kind of fraud and platform that wasn't in the best interest of the healthcare consumer that was getting a lot of of press and publicity at the time. And we were bringing to market a home blood test that was done by a finger prick, but using existing technology that had been around for many decades. And we were really going through the rigorous clinical studies. We actually ended up getting published in the top academic journal for OBGYNs, the American Academy for Obstetrics and Gynecology. We presented it at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. But when we were first starting, you know, those publications take time and they didn't exist. And we were, you know, talking about this future, but we have the data, but it hadn't been published yet. And I just, I remember being so committed to doing what was really right scientifically, but the press rightfully in some cases just had so many questions. And I just remember not knowing (laughs) how we would be able to navigate every single one of those questions when, you know, all of these things just take time. And so I think that there just continue to be with every business, with every sector, so many kind of macro pressures around figuring all of that out. But yeah, I would say from every part of the business has its its ups and downs from hiring and building the team the right way to fundraising, to just making every decision as a founder as to where you're spending your time and then where you're not spending your time because of that. I think every single day it's just, you know, fraught with those ups and downs that are a part of just creating the, the company and, and going from zero to one. Sure. And, you know, someone at your position, obviously high growth company, you guys recently sold to Roe. You're now the president of the new organization. How do you 
manage burnout? Is there any time where you just need to take a step back and just recuperate? I mean, because I think mental health is something that's so important, especially when you want to show up as an amazing leader, be productive. But are there any tactics or rituals that you incorporate in your life just to create some type of balance and whatever balance even means for you? Yeah. You know, I read some of these like entrepreneur Q and A's and magazines about how women get up our men and start the day with a meditation and then exercise and do all of these things. And I think for a while I, I felt kind of guilty about my routine, but now I've fully accepted it. So I, I wake up at the last possible second before my first meeting. I'm very much a night person. I roll out of bed. I take a five minute shower. I throw on my kind of work uniform for the day and I bike into our office down the street and I, you know, show up and, and grab coffee and I just dive in. And if I do wake up early, I just stay in bed and I do emails for way too many hours on my phone uh, before. Sounds you know, like started. my life. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I, I think for me, that perfect morning routine is not where I've invested to manage my day. Maybe I will at, at some point, but for me, it's, it's finding things that I can fully detach from work. And quite honestly, I don't have a ton of time to do that just for the phase of our business and where we are, but I really love road biking. And for me, I think that, you know, road biking as an activity or just getting on a bicycle, you cannot be on your phone. If you do, you will crash. Yes, it will not be good for great. anyone. <laughs> and there's just a, a certain amount of, you know, activity riding okay. up hills. You're just, you're consumed by the sport. And I think what's my favorite part is just seeing where my mind wanders. And, you know, typically I, I love what I do. It's often to, you know, places that I really need to focus and I'll work through a particular problem. And I think that sometimes, you know, removing yourself from the emails, the day-to-day, -day, just everything that's happening and giving yourself the space to really allow your brain to process, you know, this decision in the context of all the others and just seeing where your brain moves is really helpful. And so I've really tried to do things like that. And more recently, I'm trying to get back into trumpet playing. Amazing. Uh, and my embouchure has not held up over the years. So I, I can only get about 15 to 20 minutes in a day, but I truly believe in the power of music neurologically to play it and just what that does for your thinking, creativity, stress. So I'm hoping that that will be a part of my routine on a, a go forward basis. But yeah, to your question, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. If you figure it out, the magic combination, let me know. But I, I think that truly finding a way to label what you love and do more of that within the day to day has also been really helpful, especially when, you know, schedules are quite intense. Absolutely. I mean, even if it's 30 minutes or an hour, it still can make a profound impact. And I love the aspect of having an active activity where you actually cannot be on your phone because I still <laughs> catch myself being on the phone and you're not disconnecting. So I will definitely take that and try to incorporate it in my own life. I love that. It does definitely make a difference. So I'd love to get your perspective on a question that I'm sure you get a lot, but what do you think are some of the biggest myths that women or even men have around fertility? Oh gosh, there's so many, you know, I think what I think is so interesting is that, you know, women are born with all of the eggs we're ever going to have at birth. And that number goes to zero at menopause and just that fundamental understanding of we're born with eggs, our entire ability to reproduce naturally and procreate at birth. And that goes to zero at menopause. It's a fairly, you know, simple concept, but it's just not incorporated as a part of our healthcare system, our education system 
system today. And so I think, you know, in starting modern fertility and measuring your ovarian reserve and just understanding a little bit more about where you are on that trajectory, we have averages based on age, but every single person, just like they have a different metabolism has a different fertility curve. And I think just the, you know, awareness and perception of all of that is just empowering to truly be able to understand more and be an active participant in decisions as they relate to your family building timeline, as opposed to having biology make those decisions for you. I think it's just what people with ovaries deserve to have at their fingertips, more tools and more solutions. I think another one is, you know, in today's society, egg freezing, IVF, just all of these assisted reproductive technologies get a lot of press, which is great. I think that more awareness around these types of assisted reproductive technologies is important, but I think that often those advertisements or narratives are not totally clinically sound. And so for example, for egg freezing, I think it's a fantastic procedure. It's right for some women, but it is not an insurance policy. When you freeze eggs, there is no way to test if they eggs themselves before they're fertilized are chromosomally viable. And even in, you know, taking every one of those eggs, fertilizing them, then implanting them in your uterus or a surrogate, there is just risk at every phase of that process. And so while egg freezing can, you know, change the chances or odds, it is not an insurance policy. And I think that the shift around that framing needs to just be a little bit more transparent. I think even when we dive into, you know, parts of egg freezing, a lot of my friends, our customers don't know that it might take more than one cycle, more Mm. than one full treatment protocol to achieve the number of eggs, to get to your broader family planning goals with a higher amount of of risk, again, separate from an insurance policy. And so I think that, you know, as women wait until later in lives to start our families and the realities of biology, ovarian reserve, all of these different components are are just more pronounced. We need clinically neutral sound information at our fingertips to truly make the decisions that are right for us, our futures and lives. And I think that when we look at the amount of, you know, stigma, misconceptions, just narrative more broadly, the best that we can do, it's where modern fertility is focused, but just every single person with ovaries, person without ovaries, just having honest, open conversations about fertility and reproductive health can start to just normalize the dissemination of this information, the conversations. And I think it's just what we should all do for each other. Absolutely. I mean, and so much of what you shared, especially the finite amount of eggs that we as women have, I mean, that's something I learned two years ago. And I'm like, how did I not know this? Most basic things. And what I appreciate about what modern fertility does is the way you guys even explain the information is very simple to understand because you can get your blood test and not understand where you lie with everything. I mean, I've gone through that process myself and, you know, super impressed with the way you guys approach it. And also what I love is when we went on your website, you also disclose your own test results, which I love, like talk about destigmatizing the conversation around fertility. That was amazing. So I really appreciate how you guys are at the forefront of changing the conversation and you're doing such an amazing job and making it scalable and affordable. So I'm so excited. Our listeners are getting to learn more about you and the business, because I think as women are getting more educated about their bodies, it's only an empowering feeling. Like you said, you know, we are having children later in life and why not just understand your body and think about the different options that are available to you. So I absolutely love what you guys 
are up to. And I want to be mindful of our time together. But one thing that I'd love to talk about, because it's such an amazing accomplishment, is your recent acquisition to Roe. You guys sold for 200 plus million, which is huge. You know, we've had a lot of founders on our podcast who have exited and sold their companies. And it's always been a big transition in their lives. And they've always had some thoughts around it. I know it's probably very early, you're head deep into it, but would love to just kind of see how you're doing in the process and how it's going for you. Yeah, no, I I think it is such an emotional decision to decide to sell your company. But for us, I think one of the coolest things about selling to Roe is it it really didn't feel like we were selling modern fertility. It felt like we had found just a new chapter of modern fertility within Roe to truly accelerate our growth and get to the next chapter of closing this fertility information gap and creating this platform of, of solutions for women. And so Oh gosh, when I first got introduced to Z, the the CEO of Roe, I rejected the meeting. I said, no, we're fundraising. I have terms on the table. We're good. Uh, But then I finally took the meeting and what was supposed to be a 30 minute introductory call turned into a a multi-hour, just heart to heart conversation about the future of healthcare. And what I realized is that we had both come to building our respective companies uh, very different ways, but the vision we saw for how we wanted to impact and change the world really came together. And it was truly one of these, you know, one plus one equals 10 situations where I I looked at the roadmap that we had for the next year of modern fertility year plus, and it was building a lot of infrastructure. And that's really what Roe has done so incredibly well. And our ability to plug into that infrastructure, utilize it, but then focus on what I love and what our team is really good at, which is taking that and customizing it to truly meet the needs of women. We don't have time to lose. And the ability to accelerate our mission to that degree based on this partnership, that is something that I would continue the conversations with. And ultimately made the decision that this is a way that we can continue to accelerate our mission and future even faster. And so I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about selling and acquisitions and just what that means in terms of a company and ambition and goals. And I think for me, speaking honestly, I hadn't even considered it. I don't think that our VCs were reminding us that that was an outcome because, you know, from their perspective, there's a lot of incentives at play. But I think, you know, in taking a step back and looking at the nature of the space and what we would be able to accomplish together, it was just really fun. And yeah, I can say, oh gosh, a month and a half in, it's been great. We are are learning so much about and basically reevaluating our roadmap in light of these new capabilities, which is just a ton of fun and still hiring and still uh, <laughs> Ro has committed to just investing a ton in women's health, which has been great to see that follow through post-close. Wow. Incredible to see how one meeting where you rejected because you don't want to sell the business <laughs> where it turned out because you never know. I mean, we hear that never so know. often, you know, you don't want to get rid of your baby or, or merge with somebody else or have somebody else take control, but you never know how certain conversations can go. And it seems like the mission and the values you both have really aligned. So it's the perfect partner for you guys. So that's just beautiful to hear in terms of any acquisition. And one question we like to close with, and we ask all of our guests is wealth means so much more than money. And everybody, has our own definition of wealth at this stage in your life. What does wealth mean to you? That's a great question. I think I really track wealth in terms of impact. Seeing 
the world change in a way that I truly believe it should. And knowing that I played a a part in that, even in a small way, truly determines wealth for me. So yeah, I think I would really tie it to impact. Yes, well, that you're incredibly wealthy because you are just getting started (laughs) and you've made such an impact already. So I'm excited to see where the company will go and where you will go. And it was just such an honor to have you on, Afton. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.